I can remember as a, a boy having that rare experience of going out to eat. Didn't happen often. But uh, typically, if we did, my parents would take us to a local cafeteria where back in the days, one price covered everything. Every time I went, I had the same problem. I wanted everything, certainly more than I could handle. I mean, you know how they lay it out. You get to the front of the line and the pasta salad looks good and then you get down and all that jello salad, you know, really looks good too. And then you get to the bread and the banana bread looks great and so do the sourdough rolls. And, and then you get to the main course and you have the lasagna. I'll take some of that. That looks super. And fish, that looks really good too. And those uh, potato chunks soaking in, in, in butter and I don't have a vegetable yet, so that'll work out just well for me. And, and then you get to the dessert, and how in the world do you ever make a decision between chocolate cake and banana pudding? I had a guy come up to me after the first hour. He said, Stephen, there's no G on the end of that. It's I-N-G. It's, it's banana pudding. Okay? It's banana pudding. Well, how do you make that decision? Well, I'll just take both. And, you know, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. And typically, I'd either get a stomachache or half of that food would be left uneaten. You know, there's something about growing up that cultivates the ability to say no to some things and yes to other things. What we could call the art of refusal. I don't know if you come to Wednesday night dinners around here, but they are wonderful. My wife and I are eating with Greenhouse uh, students uh, each Wednesday night. And I don't know if they prepare for people like me because you don't choose. You get a plate and it's already on your plate. I would never choose that many green beans, but it's already there. And uh, no choice needed. I'd say double up potatoes or whatever. No, it's, it's, it's handed. And by the way, it is all, all delicious. But I didn't choose any of it. What about life? The problem is you're surrounded by a buffet of opinions and viewpoints. And people are pretty excited about their particular opinions and viewpoints. And it all looks and may sound pretty good. One of the things we must do as we grow in the Lord and as we grow together is to learn what we need to leave there alone and what we put on our plate, what we carry into our lives. We need to learn the art of refusal. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to reinforce in Titus chapter 3, where he tells Titus and the churches through Titus to learn this spiritual art of refusal. He's, gonna, he's basically been positive. He's telling them you know, what to do. We ended our last discussion by engaging in good deeds. Get involved in any and every way possible to benefit mankind. They'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But now he comes to this list and he says, by the way, don't bring these to your table. Learn to refuse these particular distractions. They might look good. They might look interesting. They might seem appealing. You might take a little of each. You're going to end up with a spiritual stomachache or worse. Four distractions to refuse. Let's get a running start at verse 8. We studied last Lord's Day and, and then move into the text for today. Titus chapter 3, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men or mankind in general, 
Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they, these things, are unprofitable and worthless. Notice he doesn't say these things are unpopular. Oh, they were very popular, as we'll see in a little bit. But he doesn't want to end this letter without this warning, because though things may be on very popular, he's saying they're unprofitable. In other words, they're not good for you. Uh, don't put them on your tray. Now let's take a closer look at these four distractions. The first one that he mentions is, in my translation, it simply says, foolish controversies. He writes at the beginning of verse 9, avoid them. Avoid them. That word, uh, that verb, avoid, means literally shun, to shun, to turn your face away from. Turn around if you have to. Shun this. In other words, while everybody else is captivated, while everybody else is you know, digging in and getting seconds, uh, you turn your face and heart away. You're learning the art of refusal. You're saying no to these things. What are these? He calls them foolish controversies. Now, we have a little bit of a tip of the hand and this is something we don't want to get involved in because the word for foolish is the word moros. We get our word moron. Moronic. These things are moronic. Only morons will get involved in this. Paul, you know, he's so gracious at times and just telling us like it is. The word for controversies refers to searching out things that have no basis. They might have a little bit of a nuance in the Word of God, but they're really not clear. We would sort of relegate them to doubtful things or gray things where God may lead you to do something and His Spirit in your heart and life, but it's for you, doubtful, gray. Oh, at, uh, those are at best. At worst, they're, they're speculations. You've got to turn Scripture around. They can occupy the mind. They can become fascinations. You really can't resolve them biblically because there isn't enough in the Scriptures to resolve them. See, Paul has already warned Titus in chapter 1 to avoid Jewish myths. Jewish myths. Jewish fables. And he says here they are they're fruitless. They're useless. They are unprofitable. And frankly, at, at one point in my life, I, I wouldn't have known exactly what these were. Fortunately, this past summer, I was exposed to Jewish myths and fables as I preached in uh, the beautiful Adirondack Mountains, the home of Word of Life there in Upper New York. It was in July. My wife and I were looking forward to this cool mountain weather. They had a heat wave while we were there. It had record-setting temperatures. And I preached in an open camp without air conditioning. I, I took them through the book of, of Ruth and mentioned Jewish traditions and uh, customs. And one of the men came up to me and he said, have you ever purchased a copy of rabbinical legends? And I said, well, I didn't really know anything about it. And he said, oh, yeah, there's a wonderful English translation of rabbinical interpretations of Jewish legends. This man was Jewish. And these have been handed down from one generation to the other. So I ordered a copy and kind of put it in my in my library at, at home, it's, it's an oversized volume. 
with large pages and nearly a thousand pages. And so when I hit this text, I hadn't thought about it in chapter one. In fact, we weren't there yet. And so when I finally got to this text, it hit me. I've got this book and I pulled it down and I began to read more legends than I could ever begin to give to you today. But would you like to hear one or two of them? Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. I'll do this. All right. Here we go. I'll summarize a few of them. One rabbi, in fact, what I did is I went back to the text of Noah and the ark since we're studying that, and I thought, okay, what kind of speculations and legends could be related to that? <laughs> More than I can read. Here are some of them. One rabbi taught that Noah and his family barely survived because as the rain began to fall, people rushed to the ark and began to try to tip it over, and God sent lions to encircle the ark and protect them. Kind of fascinating thought. Another legend claims that even though it was dark, Inside the ark, Noah had brought a pearl of great price, and, and it gave light for the year they were on the ark so that Noah and his family could see. I've heard of an, a pearl of great price, and well, maybe that was it. Well, that would be their legend. Another rabbinical legend tells us that when the rain began to fall and the floodwaters began to rise, uh, one large sea creature didn't want to perish, so Noah tied him to the ark, and he swam alongside the ark as he plowed furrows in the water, reaching from one edge of the sea to the other. Another rabbi taught that as the floodwaters swelled, that Og, the king of Bashan, uh, sat on one of the rungs of the ladder leading up to the door of the ark and begged Noah to save him, he and his sons, and said, if you do, we'll be your slaves forever. And so Noah punched a hole in the ark and threw the hole, handed out food to the king every day. That explains this little strange phrase in Deuteronomy that Og survived. Another legend claims that every raindrop that fell on earth, God first brought it to a boil in the underworld before he carried it out and then dropped it on the human race. I mean, is this good reading or what? This is great devotional reading. One more rabbinical legend claims that when Noah sent out the dove at the end of the flood, she flew to the gates of the Garden of Eden. And God opened the gates for her, and she was able to bring back to Noah an olive leaf freshly picked there from the Garden of Eden. See, Paul is speaking here to a predominantly Jewish congregation on the island of Crete. And, and they're going to come in with rabbinical legends and traditions that are elevated to the authority of Scripture. And they're going to create unprofitable debates and controversies. I mean, how are you going to teach Noah and the flood with all of these controversies about what really happened? The Bible barely even hints at. In the same way, the church in every generation can get caught up in debatable, doubtful interpretations and questionable speculations. The Bible isn't as clear as we'd like it to be, so notwithstanding, we take sides and we take shots. Paul delivered the same warning to Timothy, by the way, when he wrote, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. Rather, then furthering the plan of God, which is by faith. You see, this just gets in the way of progress. He wrote further to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Why? They just produce quarrels. In other words, if the Bible isn't clear on it, 
Don't argue over it. The enemy will be more than happy in a fight like that over some kind of interpretation or speculation to stay neutral and provide ammunition to both sides as they fire away. Which is why Paul would also write, do everything you possibly can, be diligent, persevere, attempt to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Nowhere is that more needed than in a congregation. In our greenhouse class, our class for incoming potential new members, the need is immediately apparent and exciting to see develop as that class grows together. I typically begin by going around the room, and this time we have about 82 adults, and ask them where they came from, and we sort of do a denominational tour, which is always really fascinating. We have former, in this class, we have former uh, Roman Catholics, former Anglicans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Evangelical Free Church, Bible Church, non-denominational, Independent Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Southern Baptists, Confused Baptists. I mean, we're all in there together. <laughs> Many of them coming directly from their former church. I go around the room and tell them to raise their hand when I get to their denomination. You know, we have Missionary Alliance, United Methodists. If we have any Assemblies of God, I'll tell them you can raise both hands if you'd like. That'll be just fine. They come from all over. Some come from uh, small churches and they're intimidated. Some come from churches that make ours look small. Some are used to their pastor preaching on issues and topics of the day. Others are used to their pastor preaching through a book of the Bible for years. <laughs> that's, that's common out there. Some are from churches that sang mostly hymns with a piano and organ. Some from churches that sang mostly choruses with a band. Some of them want more music. Some of them want more preaching. Okay, I made that part up, but if I asked them, I'm sure they'd say that. Now, some people come from churches with a lot of liturgy and, and, uh, and formality. And some come from churches where it's just kind of a free-flowing service. We have people born and raised in the South, uh, people from the North, people from the West, people from up East. We have in this class Caucasian, descent African, descent Hispanic, Asian, a mixture of all the above and more. Some heard the gospel every time they showed up to their church. Some are hearing the gospel for the very first time. One of them, a young police officer, began, I'm not sure how it started, but he began podcasting our sermons and listening while on duty, came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he and his wife are here now. You got a room full of older believers, and you get new believers. Others have accepted Christ just this semester. You got single people, married people, couples with children, couples without children. You got parents that homeschool their children, send their children to public schools, still others to Christian schools. I usually tell them that my wife and I did all three, public school, home school, Christian school. I can say with all authority, none of them work <laughs> perfectly, I'll add. I mean, how are we ever going to get along? How are we ever going to get along? Maybe you're wondering too right about now. Well, I mean, how are these believers on the island of Crete 
kind of get along. You got yeah, descendants of Gentile pirates. You got idolaters, formally. You've got staid Jewish converts coming out of their liturgy and ritual. Some of them are poor. Some of them are wealthy. Some are uneducated. One of them, Paul mentioned at the end of the letter, is an attorney, highly educated. You got them coming in with religious traditions and some with pagan ritualistic memories. You got some like those um, influenced by the Essenes. They, they would eat meals together wearing special clothing, having ceremonially bla- uh, bathed before coming to the meal. Now they're standing in the assembly next to a Gentile who doesn't know what the word bathe means. How are they ever going to get along? Everybody came into the assembly by way of the cross, right? And the cross washed away their sin. But opinions tend to stick. Funny how that happens. Paul is effectively telling Titus, you're going to need to remind them about these legends, these myths, these opinions For some, they're going to have to shed opinions that they have believed because the word isn't as clear as they thought it might have been. Tell them to develop the art of refusal, what to leave there in that buffet line, what not to put on their tray. And here's how you can determine what to keep to yourself and what to try and convince others to adopt. At the end of the verse, he's going to summarize. We'll get there eventually. But he's going to say, this stuff is, this stuff is unprofitable and, and worthless. In other words, it's not going to bear any fruit. It doesn't help you grow up. It doesn't win anybody to the church or faith in Christ, even if you win the argument. I shared recently with my uh, greenhouse class my growing opinion that we ought to wear white clothing I mean, we're told in Revelation that our future wardrobe is going to be the triumphant robes of white linen, indicative of victory and battle as the Romans would come from battle victorious, wearing white, their generals wearing white. In light of that coming day, we ought to even now begin to wear white in anticipation of our final victory with Christ. I mean, we're told in Revelation 19 that we're going to come wearing white on stallions of white, so we ought to start wearing white clothing now. How are we doing? You with me? And they begin to smile, of course. They know I'm pulling their leg and I'm not wearing white clothing. Could I be serious? I then read a quote to them from one church leader who gathered a following in the second century who was very serious and he preached and I quote, forsake colored clothing. Remove everything in your wardrobe that is not white. And then he went on. He had other convictions. No longer sleep on a soft pillow, nor take warm baths. If you are sincere about following Christ, never shave. For to shave is an attempt to improve on the work of him who created us. How many of you this morning before you came to church attempted to improve on the work of your creator? (laughs) 
And everybody said, amen. amen. I mean, is this guy serious? Absolutely serious. A little bit of scripture, a little bit of twisting, a little bit of opinion, and a lot of, you know, emotion, passion. I can't help when I read that quote to my class at laugh because I grew up in a circle of churches that believed if you didn't shave, you were sinning. I mean, facial hair was just, I mean, that was right up there with heresy. And now here's a guy preaching that if you did shave, you were sinning. Listen, in any generation, there are plenty of controversies. But at the end of the day, in fact, hopefully we're outgrowing many of these foolish controversies. They're really unfruitful. I haven't even really mentioned anything controversial. I mean, whether, whether or not global warming is real or make-believe, let's argue about that in the lobby. If drilling offshore is a good idea, if gun control is a bad thing, if border control is a waste of money, if you should be eating only organic foods to prove that you're taking care of God's vessel, if you should be driving an electric car to prove you're taking care of God's planet, if you're feeding your cats and your dogs expensive food that has vegetables in them to prove you're a loving pet owner because your dog needs to eat vegetables like you do. <laughs> your dog wants to eat that cat. That's what your dog wants to eat. I mean, I, we could really get controversial. We, we, could, we could talk about political views. We could talk about parenting styles. We could talk about personal convictions, worship styles, an array of preferences and, and opinions and traditions and secondary issues that so easily elevate to the level of gospel truth. You see, the Apostle Paul has been around the block a few times. And he knew that, that Titus, in fact, the Apostle Paul knew the legends. He was a skilled rabbi. He knew the threat to an effective, productive, worthwhile ministry. He knew that non-saving, secondary, non-doctrinal, non-essential things, they changed their names over the generations. But the church can be distracted by pursuing them, creating foolish controversies where we all just sort of look like a bunch of morons, right? To our world, certainly. And we consider each other moronic for either following them or not following them. And so because of these controversies, it just sort of shrivels up the demonstration of the grace of God in our lives and the potential for spiritual fruit and really real effective advancement of the gospel shrivels up and disappears. Listen, develop the art of refusal. Ask yourself the question, is this really going to advance the glory of Christ? I mean, you're surrounded by a buffet of opinions, and you've got to make decisions as you ask the Spirit of God for wisdom. But be careful. Stick to the Word, not some strange interpretation of it. Help protect your brothers and sisters from loading up all kinds of things they're not really going to be able to handle. It's going to make them sick, weakly, unprofitable. Secondly, Paul goes on in verse 9 
to refer not just to shunning foolish controversies, but also notice, avoid genealogies. Again, this would have been particularly important to a Jewish audience. The Jewish people meticulously tracked, they investigated, they documented their, their tribal line, their family line, their clan. It would affect inheritances. It would affect uh, their land holdings. Uh, genealogies uh, could determine status. Oh, you're related to him. Oh, you're related to her. Oh, wow. It, it, it could assume dominance and position of authority. This is going to creep into the church if they're not uh, careful, and this would have especially been divisive between the Gentile and the Jewish believer. The Gentiles are going to hold over the Gentiles the fact that they were related to the apostles, come from the same tribe. They were related to one of the prophets. Oh, that's my clan, my tribe, my line. And by the way, we, the Jewish people, delivered to you the word of God through the prophets and the apostles. We delivered through our leading tribe, our royal tribe of Judah, the Messiah. You guys, I mean, you're going to be second class, okay? We just need to set that up right at the beginning. And genealogies then became equal, as it were, to the gospel. The Jews could claim some kind of, of um, spiritual superiority. And that would be that. This would be terribly distracting to the church. In fact, just take that thought back into chapter 1 where Paul tells Titus to appoint elders. Can you imagine Titus overlooking a well-connected Jewish man who's a descendant of so-and-so and choosing a Gentile fisherman? To be an elder. We're not given the information, but you can only imagine the challenges which Paul continues to reinforce to Titus to stand true and firm in this organization of the church. In fact, before we leave this thought, consider the fact that the only genealogies that really mattered were the genealogies that were given in the Bible that proved Jesus was in fact a descendant through Mary and Joseph back to King David so that he had the legal right to the throne which is a messianic promise of a kingdom yet to come. Beyond that, the only genealogical record that will matter for eternity is whether or not we are related by faith to Jesus Christ. That's the only family tree that really matters. You have, by faith, become a child of God, John 1.12. Not by blood, that is who you're related to, or the will of the flesh, or the will of, the, or the will of man, but by God, John 1.13. That's the only family tree that should matter in the church. Paul says, start living now in light of the value of that family tree. Notice third, Paul mentions the distraction of strife. Verse 9, strife, that, that, that kind of is a catch-all. If we didn't get picked up in the other two, that catches everybody else. Just strife, just fussing and arguing and quarreling. You get the idea that Paul is not only warning the churches what not to do, the implication here is that the churches were already involved in doing it. 
So Titus, go and tell them to stop the strife, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. As we learned in an earlier text, Paul is sort of reveling in the fact that we have been ambushed by the grace of God. Remember that study? We've been ambushed by the kindness and the grace and the goodness of, of God. And what did we learn from God's example? Well, we learned that part about ambush. We learn about grace and ambushing one another with kindness and love. Jim Simbola, interesting, he pastors the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, whose wife wrote the number that our choir just sang. He was talking in an interview about how he challenges the new members who joined that church to not speak critically or unkindly about any other member instead of talking to them directly. He made this comment in an interview I read just recently. He said, to this day, every time we receive new members, I, much, I, I say much the same thing. That's because I know what most easily destroys the church is not crack cocaine, government oppression, or even a lack of funds. Rather, it is this kind of strife that grieves the Spirit of God. And how quickly it can escalate, right? Dwight, a Pentecostal, a longtime professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Seminary, I was so privileged to have him as a prof and, and a friend. He tells of one church split that was so serious, each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the others of their right to come. The judge threw it out of court, fortunately, but it came to a church court convened by denominational leaders, which is where I suppose could be better resolved, certainly better than civil courts, which is a violation of Scripture. Uh, the church court made its decision and awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The losers of that uh, debate withdrew formed another church in the area. What was interesting to me and tragic was that in the course of the proceedings, the church leadership found that the conflict had originated at a church dinner. This is where it all started, where an older church member received a smaller slice of meat than the child seated next to him. And it just escalated from there. Accusations were made probably to the guy serving the meat. Accusations, people joined in, sides are taken, it escalates, and now we have, months later, full-blown strife and division. Strife is an ever-present distraction waiting to happen within any body of believers. And Paul knew that it could uproot the advancement that Titus was accomplishing through the organization of these churches. Why? Because strife reduces the gospel to personality conflicts. Strife dissolves the unity of the church into cliques. Strife refuses to listen to reason, and it rides upon rumor and emotion. And strife invites the enemy of the church inside the church, where he is more delighted than ever to help stir the pot and to do what Solomon told us was one of the seven things that God particularly hated 
in Proverbs 6.19, we're told that God despises seven things, and the seventh was the one who spreads strife among the brethren. Strife literally invites the devil to church. And why would the devil ever need to attack a church that he can join? Paul adds a fourth, a final word in his list of distractions. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife. Now notice, and disputes about the law. Now again, this is going to be particularly difficult in the first century and for a few centuries. The church is embroiled in decades of debate in how the law of Moses will operate in the dispensation of grace. What do we take from the old covenant and bring into the new covenant? A major division was circumvented at the Jerusalem Council, perhaps you already know, of uh, Acts chapter 15, where Peter and, uh, and James and Paul led the assembly toward a decision of, of, of wisdom and grace that no longer required Gentiles to effectively become Jews in order to be welcomed into this new dispensation. There would be debates, however, swirling about what we bring over, however, what we do impose of ceremony and ordinance and law and Sabbath and special day and ritual. If there was ever a time when they were, they were surrounded by a buffet of all these ideas, this was then. There were debates in Titus's day of what to do on the Sabbath. They were even debating whether or not you could pick up your child on the Sabbath day or if that constituted bearing a burden. So Titus, is, he's right in the middle of it. And he needed to stand against those who wanted the church to become just another newer outpost of Judaism. And they were as serious as Titus would have been. In fact, the Greek language uses a root word for disputes here as it's translated. It's the same root word for sword. Both divide, don't they? And that word in particular carries the nuance of, of violence. Anger boiling over. The actual striking. You could use the word even for war. It's funny, in his commentary on, on this particular text, Swindoll mentioned, Chuck Swindoll mentioned that he was aware of two seminary students who were disciplined after a quarrel over the doctrine of sanctification escalated into a fistfight. I mean, how ironic is that? Arguing over godly living and then throwing punches because you were losing the argument. If you don't think the church today has the same propensity to disputing as they did on the island of Crete. All you have to do, and I am not recommending you do it, I did it, and I don't want you to do it, but I just did an internet search under the words, church fights. Hold on to your hat. Hold on to your hat. It's tragic, isn't it, to see the bride of Christ tripping while walking down the aisle. 
tragic, isn't it, to see her with soiled shoes and torn dress, stained. To see the bride embarrass the groom, to see the bride of Christ acting in such a way you would never imagine her acting while waiting for the appearing of her beloved. Is it really bearing fruit? Is it really advancing the gospel? Is it really building a bridge to the community? Paul writes to them and to us, avoid, shun, turn your face away from, don't get involved in, don't put the stuff on your tray. Even though in that buffet line it seems like everybody else gets to dip into that. And it looks interesting. Here's the strategy for avoiding all of this, I think. The last phrase of verse 9 these things are unprofitable and worthless. Let me break that down into two positive statements. Here's how to develop the art of refusal. Be discerning, that is, stay within clear biblical boundaries. If the Bible is clear and vocal, then stand up and speak up. Communicate the truth, however, in love. If the Bible is for the for the most part, quiet, we ought to follow suit and allow one another preferences and opinions as we believe the Spirit of God is leading us. Give your energy to good deeds. Remember verse 8? These things are profitable. These four things are unprofitable. Whether that dove flew to the Garden of Eden really doesn't matter, does it? Secondly, not only be discerning and stay within biblical boundaries, but be determined. And keep your focus on the mission. Paul writes, these things are worthless. The word for worthless, Paul uses here is a word that means Useless. You could translate it fruitless. It doesn't develop the fruit of the Spirit in your own life, and it certainly doesn't develop the fruit of ministry in others' lives. Who have we discipled? Because we've won this argument. Who have we won to faith in Jesus Christ? How has the church advanced in light of it? So here's the test. Don't get all overheated and all wrapped up to the point of distraction in discussions and opinions and debates that escalate into arguments and cliques and anger and division so that at the end of the day, Paul says, we have not produced any real, tangible, lasting, eternal, spiritual fruit. No wonder Paul would write, I implore you, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.
be determined to stay within biblical boundaries, be discerning and stay focused on the mission as the bride of Christ should be. Amen? Stand with me. If you're visiting today, I'd love to meet you after the hour. I'll be down here at the front if we can help you spiritually in any way. I'd love to do that as well. We have people ready and waiting. Father, thank you that your word is in itself a balanced meal. And when we come to a, a book and we track through it, you touch on everything. Some meals are easier to swallow and digest than others. Some we have to chew. Some are more like dessert and others like vegetables and meat. But we thank you for giving us the meal you've designed in this wonderful text to keep us from worthless, fruitless distractions. Give us wisdom by means of your Spirit. And how to determine just that. Help us to develop the art of refusal and learn how to say no. And to what we should say no. And to what we should say yes. We thank you, Lord, that by faith in you we've been brought into the family of God. We are in your family tree. Help us to live as sons and daughters, bearing even more fruit to add to that tree. Fruit in our own lives as well, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.